Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. We've been talking a lot in the last year about the possibilities of herd immunity or community immunity. But it's now overwhelmingly clear that the U.S. population is not going to hit in the foreseeable future a rate that would satisfy the herd immunity standard. And the main reason for that is not distribution of vaccines, but what is called, slightly as a euphemism, vaccine hesitancy. Some studies have shown that as many as one in five Americans say they wouldn't want to take the coronavirus vaccine. And there are some indications from other studies that those numbers are in fact rising rather than declining. Public health officials and governments, and indeed all of us, therefore need to think about ways to understand and increase public acceptance of the vaccine, provided they believe, as I do, that the vaccine is an important tool in helping us get beyond this pandemic. Today's guest is one of the world's leading researchers on precisely the question of why people hesitate to take vaccines, why they don't want to take vaccines, and what might be done about it. Dr. Hadi Larson is an anthropologist. She's the founding director of the Vaccine Confidence Project, an interdisciplinary research group at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. 
She also headed the Global Immunization Communication Program at UNICEF, and she's the author of a new book, Stuck, How Vaccine Rumors Start and Why They Don't Go Away. Dr. Larson will help us understand what are the contributing factors that undermine vaccine confidence and what we might think about doing differently if we want to improve the situation going forward. Heidi, thank you so much for being here. I want to begin by asking you a sort of top of the line question, which is in your very deep cross-cultural comparisons of vaccine hesitancy, do you think that there are universal or roughly universal causes for vaccine hesitancy? Or do you think that each culture has its own reasons making it difficult to speak in very broad general terms comparing places? I would say the the common things are issues of liberty and and choice and freedom of choice, the anti-government control sentiments versus liberty. The second one would be nature. Is it natural or it feels like it's against God's plan? But that tension between you know, natural versus technical or chemical is another tension. And I think the third one as a universal is just safety, 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 safety. And I think the other kind of critical dimension is is trust and, and underlying trust in government and authorities in, quote, experts. I know you've emphasized trust very much. You said to the New York Times, we have a trust problem not a misinformation problem, which is a provocative claim. Could you say more about why you think trust is at the heart of the concerns? I honestly believe that we don't have a misinformation problem as much as a relationship problem. Hmm. (laughs) And I say that because if we had a stronger trust relationship between public and science, public and authorities, people cope with some risk. If they trust you, they're willing to put up with a little risk. If they don't, they're questioning, they're concerned, they start from a position of distrust. So if we can build that underlying relationship and make it more trusting, we'll have a bit more resilience and and acceptance of scientific advice. But that's what I mean by the underlying resilience and and willingness to take that little risk. May I ask a a follow-on question there? Because it looks to me like there's some tension between the trust analysis and your three big drivers of vaccine misinformation. So for libertarians, some distrust in authority is kind of constitutive of their worldview, that we need to be fundamentally skeptical of aggregations of power and authority. And then with respect to people who think that it's in God's hands, those folks too have a a principled reason to be distrustful of human interventions. And so I'm really wondering if the trust problem is overcomable at all, or maybe even shouldn't be overcome from the standpoint of those two kinds of, of hesitancy objections. The analysis, the sophisticated analysis that you're offering may suggest almost a kind of impossibility of overcoming some of these things because of a contradiction that exists between the value of trust and then these principled objections to trust. Yeah, I do believe that there are going to be certain kinds of hesitancy and actually deep 
refusers that we won't be able to overcome. I think we need to accept that. But what we should, as a health and medical community, strive to get as many people on on board, as it were, for the sake of the public's health. And and there will also be people, there are also people who can't take vaccines because of underlying medical conditions. So, for instance, with COVID, we don't need 100% of people vaccinated to get community immunity, as they say. But we do want to get as many as we can. I'm not saying give up, but we will have these these deep challenges. Why can't we actually nevertheless do better? I mean, go back to smallpox, one of the great successes of immunizations in global history, right? Effective eradication over a long period of time with a lot of coordination, but not so very long ago, right? I mean, that process ended in the, in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken. So why was it possible to do that, but it's not, quote unquote, possible to do this now? I mean, what were the tools and techniques that were used to bring us to smallpox eradication? And why do we seem so stuck in so many places today? We're much more democratic this is a really important point you're making. And I thought about it a lot when I was going with the polio workers door to door in in northern Nigeria, in, in India, in some of the most resistant communities. And thinking, you know, these are some of the same communities, particularly in India, which went through the same thing around smallpox. But for the smallpox eradication, there was some police force and and pretty coercive measures that would absolutely not be acceptable today. And certainly in the context of the polio eradication initiative, we could not do in some of the states I was in what was done in the previous campaigns. I'm not saying it was all that way, but there were certain types of coercion that isn't just not tolerated today. I'm going to ask a subversive question, and I want to preface it by saying, you know, my day job is that I'm a constitutional law professor. I spend all of my time thinking about, you know, how you could make liberal democracy work alongside the need for government authority. So I I take this with, you know, with that background. Maybe we're just doing it wrong. You know, maybe the idea that there should be a democratic right to refuse vaccination is not only a mistake from a practical standpoint, but is generating the kind of hesitancy that you're talking about to a greater degree than it would otherwise exist in the sense that if you ask people, do you want the vaccine or not, you're putting them almost in an existential situation of having to weigh many, many, many different factors, ideological, personal, belief, chance, risk, knowledge, ignorance. Maybe that's just asking too much of people. And maybe if we simply required it universally, there would be there would still be some objections, but maybe people just wouldn't spend as much time dreaming them up. And just to, to finish the thought about why this isn't maybe so crazy, you know, when the U.S. Supreme Court was asked to consider this issue in the early 20th century, it answered unequivocally, look, you have lots of liberal rights against the state, but you don't have a right to say no to vaccines because vaccination is necessary to help everybody. And so you just don't have that as a fundamental constitutional right. And you know what, if it went to the Supreme Court today, they might well reach the same conclusion. So it's not necessary that we say 
that forced immunization is undemocratic. We could just say forced immunization is consistent with our values because it's necessary to save lives. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, we do have required immunization to go to school, but it's about settings. In my work in the UN, I worked a lot on rights issues and and particularly the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Mm -hmm. And we often talked about this fine line where rights become responsibilities. You have your individual right until you get to a point where it harms others. And vaccines sit on that cusp. I agree with you that we do need to rethink our whole approach. I think we really need a whole different approach because also we have a lot more vaccines. And I know that, for instance, in France, um, they added a number of additional vaccines required for school in the context of some very serious measles outbreaks in 2018. I think there were 80,000 across Europe. And there was uh, outrage in the streets against it. But ultimately, a number of the healthcare professionals told colleagues at the Ministry of Health, thank you. It takes the onus off of me as a healthcare provider to have to persuade someone to take. I feel like the government is behind me. I'm supporting that. I'm helping implement that. But the onus is not on me to make that persuasive argument. Well, can you say more about the approach that, that you would advocate? Because we don't train physicians or scientists very much in convincing people to take up the pro-social, pro-health interventions that they invent, right? I mean, scientists are supposed to invent things that make the world better, and physicians are supposed to give treatments that make the world better, but we don't think that their job is to do persuading. So what what is the approach that you think would be better for the next time around? Well, I think actually in the current environment, a lot of the medical community, particularly the more senior medical community, is not used to being challenged, is not used to having their authority challenged. And I think we've come to a different point where we have publics that are very different than they were, certainly 20 years ago, much more questioning, the world of information at their fingertips, not hesitant to be challenging the authority of their doctors. And what I've seen happen is some doctors actually shut down because they don't want to go there. They don't want to have that argument. So I think what needs to be trained is less of the promotional side and more of the how to have a difficult conversation. But can I just ask, do you think that would work? I mean, in light of the the subtle social pressures that you're describing, I don't think, I mean, I'm just thinking of physicians I know, many of whom are, you know, the most impressive people, you know, that I come into contact with, and they have many, many amazing skills. But I'm not sure that even with, you know, a sophisticated training seminar, they would be able to convince people who are truly vaccine hesitant, partly because I'm just not sure what arguments are going to are going to work. I mean, you know, you could say, well, yes. gee, you trust me the rest of the time. Why don't you trust me this time? And that's the honest answer, right? Yeah. That's the true answer. Like, I can't demonstrate to you the truth of the scientific evidence right now. You have to trust me because you trust me the rest of the time. Like, that's the actual yeah. epistemological yeah. answer. But I don't think people would be very inclined to believe them when they said that, given what you're describing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I I agree with you. And I know a number of doctors who have told me that 
you know, they've tried all kinds of angles in some situations, Mm -hmm. and it's just not going to change some people's minds. And they've kind of gotten to a point where they say, I I try in many different angles. I talk about vaccinating my own children. I talk about vaccinating myself. They still don't. So there are going to be some people that are difficult to change. But at the end of the day, we still in all of our globally in surveys and in any kind of trust barometers or whatever, we still see that more than ever, doctors and healthcare providers have more trust than just about any other institution going. So there is a trust there, but I think right now they need more than the doctor. They need somebody else in their social spheres to change their mind now. I I don't pretend to have any easy answers, but all I would say is don't give up if you're a doctor. Keep keep trying. One of the puzzles that strikes me as so rich and interesting around vaccine hesitancy is that unlike almost any other situation that we're required to make a decision about our health care, which are usually individualized, that is to say, my decision only affects me. In the case of vaccines, there is a free rider dynamic, right? If enough other people are vaccinated and I'm not vaccinated, I'm still reducing my odds of getting sick because the prevalence of the disease will decline by whatever percentage of people are, are vaccinated. And that makes me wonder, are there any examples that you've come across in your work of situations where lots of people decline a vaccine and then the disease is bad enough that it spreads, it continues to do harm in the community where the people live, and then you get some kind of systematic shift where people say, whoa, I, I thought I was going to get away with this, but now I can't get away with it. And so I'm shifting my views, and now I'm going to go out there and get a vaccine. Or does the kind of free rider effect, is it so powerful that once people have said no, they're probably never going to say yes? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, the free riders, if they think that there's enough going on, they they might be opportunistic. But if they see that it's a pretty serious pandemic or whatever, or in the case of measles, pretty serious wave coming back, um, they could be more open to getting vaccinated. That could be enough to change their mind. If we want to leverage that situation, people don't, in general, how many people know what percentage of their community is actually getting vaccinated to even know if they can relax? One strategy would be to let people know like how many people in your community are vaccinated? I don't know if that's a good strategy in a sense because it might, um, if the community's going going well, it might make more people say, "Oh, I don't have to get vaccinated." Do you think, Heidi, that it's too late this time around to make substantial inroads in, let's say, the United States and Western Europe against people who are vaccine hesitant? I mean, I understand that this is a fight that's going to be a global fight. And there may be places in the world where vaccines still haven't spread that much at all and where the fight really needs to be concentrated. Or do you think there's still time to make a meaningful difference in this particular round? So, you know, an optimistic view, which didn't turn out to be true, was that we would vaccinate enough people fast enough that um, community immunity or herd immunity could be reached and we would not have to worry about the variants that are, will inevitably now spread 
and some of which may eventually evolve to be vaccine resistant. That that ship seems to have sailed, at least in in the West. Yeah, I think we still need to get as many people as possible vaccinated. Um, I don't think it's too late. I And I don't think we should give up because out of principle, <laughs> it, it's really important to to get people on board. I, I'd like to say it's never too late. It's a very dynamic, changing environment. I think I, I remember saying, I think it was in late January, we're going to hit a wall in late March, April, I said. So it was a bit later than that. Because at the beginning of the year, we were in the thick of a serious second wave. We had recent news of these vaccines being highly effective, effect, more effective than most vaccines. And there was a limited supply. So all of those things would drive people. So we had the willing, the eager up front, wanting to get whatever limited supply, seeing that, you know, this is bad, still bad. But as we get more supply, as the the willing have been more vaccinated, and as the pandemic appears to be waning, you know, we're, we're starting to hit more difficult populations. So I think we have to change some strategies. And I also don't think we should give up because it's not just about COVID vaccine. Everything we do around COVID and building confidence around the vaccines, it could be foundational moving forward for other vaccines. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible 
to unearth the truth. I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Heidi, I am fascinated by the role that fear has played um, on all sides of the COVID pandemic and its and the various treatments that we've been looking at for it. So it sometimes seems to me that um, at first, many, many people were afraid of getting COVID and those folks eventually masked up and engaged in social distancing. And others said, well, look, it's not the end of the world. Statistically, you, you probably won't die from it and you might not get it. And so don't be so fear-based. And then with the rise of the vaccines, we've seen a shift. And now there are lots of people saying, um, well, I am afraid of the vaccine more than I am afraid of the possibility of getting COVID. Now, obviously, there's a lot of overlap between those people and the people who said they weren't afraid of COVID in the first place. But before they were saying, we're not afraid of COVID. And now they're saying we are afraid of a vaccine. Meanwhile, the people who before were afraid of COVID are now saying that they're not afraid of a vaccine. I know, realize there's not a perfect match, but that does seem to be the case. I mean, I'm genuinely curious. I don't really understand how the economy of fear is working for, for each group, except to say that each group is afraid of something different. Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's a risk perception thing too. I mean, there was more fear about the virus back a few months ago because it, there was more virus, the, the mortality rates were higher, it was more fearful. Um, and now, as we see that waning a bit, um, what, what seemed like a smaller risk, the, the relative risk has changed. In the meanwhile, too, people didn't have before the information about the rare risk of these, um, uh, the blood clots, for instance. So there's new information in that mix that we didn't have before. We see this even with childhood vaccines. We've got a, a lot of mothers now who are skeptical about childhood vaccines. They're just doing a very basic risk calculation. They don't see the threat of all these childhood diseases. But ironically, it's because the because, vaccines work, right? Yeah. But it, to them and their child, it's like the thing that has the risk is the vaccine. And there's also this kind of way that risk plays with our minds in a way. If a mother gives a child the vaccine or gets a child vaccinated and there's a problem, she feels far more regret and responsibility than if a child naturally gets measles because it's nature. So it's another factor that weighs in there. Yeah. That actually leads me to a question that I imagine you've spent a lot of time thinking about, it seems like vaccine hesitancy has some components that are grounded in quote-unquote reason, mathematical reason, risk assessment that um, an economist would say is rational to undertake. And then some of it consists in beliefs and values, 
which who's to say exactly which are right and wrong. And then some inheres in true irrationality, paranoia, fantasies, false claims about the world that are demonstrably false. Not just false opinion, but false claims of fact. And I guess what I'm wondering is, I mean, having spent so much of your career thinking about these questions, do you ever think about like roughly what percentage is contributing to each? You know, how much of vaccine hesitancy is coming from rational calculations, even if they're unconscious rational calculations? How much of it is coming from beliefs and values, which aren't really subject to being shown true or false in the same way that facts are? And how much of it is coming from just false beliefs about the world that we might be willing to label as, as irrational? I have thought about that. It really depends on the person. But I think that in the broader group of hesitant people around vaccines, I, I mean, I think we don't give enough credit sometimes to parents, to others who who are kind of weighing things. They're not just, you know, emotional, crazy beliefs. There are, and and my, my point about anti-vaccine, I don't mind the word. The thing I don't like is that it's used so loosely for anyone who doesn't want a vaccine. It's often used to a lot of hesitant parents who aren't at all anti-vaccine. They have some, you know, they're asking some questions and then they, oh, she's just an anti-vax. And then she becomes it more anti-vax <laughs> because of that judgment. Although is vaccine hesitancy then also though, in a sense, over-inclusive? Because for some of the people, sure, they're hesitating. And the implication oh, yeah. of hesitancy is it, it hints, oh, you can be convinced. But it seems a bit like a euphemism to me to describe people who are saying, oh, hell no, I'm not going anywhere near this vaccine. And there are a lot of people who are saying that. They're not hesitant at all. They're just a clear no. I agree. Hesitancy was not a word I chose. This was a word that was decided by the World Health Organization. And I was part of the advisory group to kind of characterize the scope and scale of it. But we we weren't able to name it. We were given that that framing of it. And I've written some things about the ambiguity of that term. So I fully, fully agree with you. What would you choose if you could choose any term? Well, I've picked the framing of confidence because also I was thinking of the consumer confidence index and we have a vaccine confidence index. You can be 0% confident and you can be 100% confident, but I don't think there's any magic one, one word. Just to try to close with something slightly optimistic, what is your um, case study that in your mind is the most optimistic or positive case in which a population which had hesitancy gradually shifted to being less hesitant? If there are, I hope, some examples of that out there that you've encountered in your research. There's a few of them. I mean, the most recent one, for instance, on the COVID work, one of the more um, successful engagement strategies was through barbers and hairdressers in Maryland. Um, I know in some of my work in India and, and in, in Africa, when you started to um, address other things in the community that people cared about, um, they were more accepting of the vaccine because they felt like, actually, you're not just here to give me my jab and keep moving. Um, oh, maybe you do care about what I think or my well-being. And I, and I think moving forward on COVID, 
we do need to somehow embed it in uh, COVID recovery more broadly, addressing mental health things, addressing other things. So I, I think we need to step back from the needle, as it were, and really think about context and never assume what's in the minds of people. They may be telling you they think it's a safety issue, but there may be something else. I think we need to hear out people because in, in India, I remember one example that I always think about is there was, everyone was saying, oh, it's a rumor. It's going to sterilize us. They're never going to let go of this rumor. Well, spending some time when some of these villages talking to people and not just a one-time survey, but going back and saying, well, what else is bugging you? You know, And it turned out that this community didn't want men coming from Delhi to their village. Um, one, they didn't want men vaccinating their children. And two, they wanted um, people who were from the community. So if something happened, they could find them. Well, these are pretty reasonable things. Once that changed, somehow the rumor thing disappeared. So I think trying to understand if is there something else going on here that you know is more tangible that maybe maybe it's more straightforward than you think and maybe it's not maybe it's more complicated but <laughs> well my barber who's been cutting my hair since i was 9 is definitely the wisest person that i know so i, I like the idea of, uh, I like the of relying one. on <laughs> of relying on barbers i mean in the indian case of course in many villages in india people were forcibly sterilized, sometimes mm. against their will, sometimes without their knowledge, as yeah. recently as the 1970s. So you could sort of understand, that seems it, to me to fall into the category of very reasonable people to be afraid of that. Absolutely. They had a real world experience. Yeah. What should I be asking you that I'm not asking you, Heidi? Well, I can tell you what I'm most worried about Please. <laughs> is where we're going with social media. I think we need to find some way to allow for opinion, but find a, find a different way to handle the way we're dealing with it, particularly around vaccines. I see us going in a direction of shutting a lot of things down that might backfire. It is something that keeps me up at night because I see some extreme behavior on both sides. This is something I, I also spend a huge amount of my time working on, and listeners of the show know that I've advised Facebook on, on their free expression policy. So I care a lot about this. I thought I heard you hinting that maybe the social media companies are going too far in taking down content that they label as anti-vaccination misinformation. And that surprised me to hear you say that because so many people from the medical establishment are out there pressuring the social media companies to do still more to take down what is described as, as COVID misinformation, including anti-vaccine misinformation. So did I, did I hear are. you right? Yeah, and governments yeah. are too. Did I, so yeah. did I hear you right there that you think it would be actually a mistake for the social media companies to go too far in shutting down skeptical discourse? I think it's a risk. And I think that it's not just the health authorities who are putting that pressure, it's government. I mean, it's coming from the top. But my Vaccine Confidence Project group here after spending 11 years and continuing to be listening and, and understand the dynamics of what's going on out there, you can't just flip a switch. You cannot delete doubt. And some of the key strategies right now that are being used by those who want to disrupt 
are quicker and more clever and nimble than the more promotional positive ones. And we're just either driving it underground or it's going into, it's embedding in a lot of other networks. And we need, I think we need a different strategy. I mean, I think I fully and absolutely agree with taking down things that are overtly harmful. And I do think and fully agree that we need to work on mitigating the amplification of risk. That, I think, is one of the the real issues, um, how it spreads. My red flag is that we need a lot more work to understand the dynamics of this space. And I worry that in trying to clean it up, we're pushing it underground, we're pushing it in spaces that we're going to be less able to engage with it, less able to address it, and not able to get cues on where we need to build more resilience. And I think it should be also a challenge to the public health and scientific community that are we not strong enough to stand up to and, and you can't just take something down with giving a better story because they're going to find it somewhere else. It's kind of an almost existential task in, in sorting this out. And I think it's not just about vaccines. It's in other areas. But vaccines, I think, because of the public health implications, is a serious one. And I'd love to talk to you more about this if you're working on it because, yeah, it's really important. Very gladly. I mean, you've really described one of the classic free speech arguments, which is that if speech is suppressed too much, it tends to go underground and then it can do greater harm. I mean, one of the early arguments for free speech at the beginning of the 20th century, when Western governments started adopting it more actively, was just the one you're making. That we need actually the full range of arguments to be made in public in order to achieve some kind of consensus, in order for people to have trust in underlying institutions. And now there's, of course, a lot of skepticism of that view in the light of the rise of social media, and that view is very much under attack. So I think your voice is extremely important on this subject. I want to thank you for your fascinating work and for taking time out of your incredibly busy crusade, as it were, to understand hesitancy better to speak with us. Thank you so much, Dr. Larson. Thanks. Very nice to meet you. I found my conversation with Dr. Heidi Larson genuinely eye-opening and more than a little bit disturbing. Not because of her research, which seems to me thoughtful and brilliant. No, what scared me the most was the realization that what we call vaccine hesitancy is almost certainly a necessary feature of our contemporary liberal democratic approach to vaccines. When I asked Heidi, why is it that in the past we were able to get lots of people to take the vaccine and now we're not, she answered unequivocally that the difference was democracy. Now, she was very positive about democracy, but I have to say that her comment really made me think that we don't have to, as a constitutional democracy, necessarily take the view that people can choose whether or not to get vaccines. We could, in principle, say that it is a legal obligation. And under current Supreme Court precedent, the government would be empowered if Congress passed a law, to say that everybody must get this vaccine. I don't think that's practically going to happen in the world in which we currently live, but it did occur to me that that might actually be desirable because in a world where ultimately 
people are given the choice of having vaccines, then the points that Heidi brought up, namely libertarianism of the left and the right, people who think that it's against nature or against God's plan to have vaccines, people who worry about the vaccine's safety, and overall, people who have less trust in the capacities of government or medical authority to do well by them, are inevitably, I think, going to substantially undercut the possibility of broadly adopted vaccinations. In other words, by choosing to define liberal democratic rights in the way that we have, we've invited the possibility of much greater harm. That's a cost-benefit analysis that I don't think I fully thought through in the right way before this conversation with Heidi. Finally, and significantly, Heidi made a very counterintuitive point, which I think is very well worth listening to carefully. And that is that we need to think about whether we might be going too far in some contexts, including in the context of social media, at shutting down discourse that undermines vaccine confidence. Her concern is that if we go too far, we will drive vaccine confidence questions underground, and that that will make it harder, not easier, for medical authorities and the government to convince people to take vaccines. Throughout the conversation, our theme of power here on Deep Background was absolutely essential. The power of government to make people take vaccines, the power of people's beliefs to lead them to places of uncertainty or questioning, and perhaps most significantly, the power of the medical establishment limited by its capacity to be trusted. These questions all could not be more pressing at the moment, and I'm grateful to Dr. Larson for joining us to explain them so intelligently. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and please be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? 
I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.